Our Father, we pray that your spirit would move in us and that as we seek to study your word together, would you by your spirit assist us in the opening up of it, that you would open our hearts to receive the truth as it is revealed in your word, that we would conform our lives, our hearts, our attitudes to what we see in the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 2. My desire this morning is not to expound this passage, but we will make reference to it a couple of times in the sermon, so I would just encourage you to have your finger there in Ephesians 2. Uh, We had been for many months in an exposition of the Gospel of John. This summer, we're taking a break from that exposition, and we'll return to it, uh, Lord willing, at the end of August, early September. Uh, But this morning, in the weeks that remain this summer, the next six to seven weeks or so, I'd like to preach a short series of sermons on some of the biblical dynamics that should characterize and permeate church life, Uh, particularly some dynamics and principles that tend toward the overall happiness and flourishing of the church body. Uh, So the focus in this series over the next six to seven weeks will be on dynamics that help to create within the church a culture and atmosphere that is happy and warm and joyful and positive and encouraging. The emphasis will be on our corporate life together. That is how we live together as a church body, as a corporate body. And the concern is for the kind of church culture we are creating here among our own church body at Emmanuel. Now, as there are principles and practices that tend toward happiness in a marriage, so there are principles and practices that tend toward happiness and joy in the life of the church. And our concern is particularly for those dynamics, those practices, those principles that are actually commended in the Bible. Uh, So don't hear me say that that I'm interested in, in, in anything that might make this just a more cheerful environment or something like that. Like, Uh, uh, If studies show that painting the walls this color makes people more cheerful, that's what we want to do. Now, we're more concerned in this series of sermons with some of the dynamics and principles taught in Scripture that God intends to generate, to promote happiness and joy and gladness in the life of the church. That's the focus uh, for this series of sermons. So the title that I'm giving this series is The Happy Church, The Happy Church church. Before introducing the first sermon in this series, I want to explain and I guess a way defend that title. Uh, Let me first be clear about what I don't mean with that title. I don't mean to communicate by that title that the happy church, uh, that the church is to be a superficial place of happy, clappy Christians who just always have plastered on smiles all the time and always say, hey brother, how you doing? That's not what we're after in this series. We're not after a superficial or a trite kind of happiness. But here's why I've landed on that title for the series. Three reasons in particular. First of all, Christians ought to be happy people. Christians ought to be happy people. We have been made happy in God by His grace and happy in Christ through the gospel. The gospel means literally good news good news. The angels called it glad tidings of great joy. And therefore, we as Christians, as those who have 
received the gospel and believed on Jesus Christ through the gospel, uh, we have been saved from our sins and we've been made right with God by His grace and we are destined for eternal bliss forever with God in sinless paradise. We ought to be the happiest people in the world. But a second reason, that is that the church, that is the gathered church, the local church, ought to be a happy environment. If we actually live out as a community of God's people, what the Scriptures teach us about the church, the church will be a place marked by joy and gladness and happiness. When you read the descriptions of the first churches in the New Testament, you can't help but think that they were happy places, glad places. Think of the very first church in Acts chapter 2, after the apostle Peter preaches that famous message at Pentecost, and thousands are converted, and they gather into a church. We get a wonderful description of that early church in Acts 2, I believe, verses 42 through 47. And what do we read about that church? Well, we read that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were breaking bread in one another's homes. They were sharing all things in common. You have to believe it was a very happy environment a glad group of people, people that had been made happy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you read the Apostle Paul's letters, you can't help but detect his sanctified optimism, his hopefulness and his gladness. He's always commending that God's people be joyful. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. He says that from a prison cell as he writes to the Philippians. There's happiness and joy that's commended in the early churches. The church ought to be a happy environment, a place where peace and unity and hope and love prevail, all things which make for the happiness of the church. And then a third reason I'll give for preaching a series of messages this summer on the happy church. And this is really a pastoral concern. So this is not something I'm drawing from the Scriptures now. Um, The first two points we can establish on the basis of the Bible. This is more an observation and a pastoral concern. And by the way, it's a concern that my fellow elders share with me. Uh, There can be a tendency for churches in this day and age to become dour and negative and problem-oriented. And there's a reason for this, multiple reasons for this, actually. Life is hard, and sin is a present reality in our lives and even in the life of the church, and circumstances are difficult, and the world around us is so discouraging. And churches can sometimes get so caught up in what is discouraging that they can mirror the negativity of the culture. We can allow ourselves to develop negative attitudes and perspectives, and the church environment can over time become a depressing and discouraging place. Look, if we're thinking Christianly, I know I made a word up just now, if we're thinking Christianly, the way Christians ought to think, we won't think that way. I don't think God's plan for the church is that his people be dour and negative and discouraged all the time in their corporate life together. The church ought to be a happy place. The New Testament directives given to the church about love and service and mutual encouragement and a host of other corporate dynamics all tend toward the happiness of the members of the church. The church ought to be happy and joyful and cheerful. And we must not allow all the things that can be discouraging, whether it's things internal to the life of the church or things outside the church and the culture and in the world around us to make us fundamentally negative and dour and discouraged. Rather, the church should be happy, happy in God, happy in the gospel, 
happy in one another. I want to emphasize that I'm not talking about being a church of fakers or people who pretend they don't have problems and sin struggles and hardships in life. God knows we have plenty. I'm talking about a church environment that is ultimately hopeful and encouraging and life-giving even through the trials and hardships of life. I'm talking about learning like the Apostle Paul how to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I'm talking about a church that understands that the Bible gives us the resources to be happy as a church body even in the challenges of life, even in the midst of trials and temptations, even in the midst of our sin struggles which can so easily discourage us and lead us to despair. So away with shallow and superficial notions of happiness. I'm not talking about that. Rather, we're after as Christians and as a church body the deeper happiness that comes with living out the ideals for the church that the Bible would call us to. And that's what this series of sermons is about. In the next six to seven messages, I'd like to preach on some of these biblical dynamics, some of these biblical principles that ought to generate an appropriately happy environment in the life of the church. Thus, the title to the series, The Happy Church. So don't worry, I won't give that apologetic uh, at the start of each sermon in this series. It's there. And that's my defense of the title. I won't be preaching on everything that tends toward the happiness of the church, but simply some dynamics and principles that tend toward the happiness of the church. So in this first sermon now, I'd like to develop the following principle, tending toward the happiness of the local church. And here is the principle. In the happy church, the membership functions as a family. In the happy church, the membership functions as a family. That is, the members of the local church, members of the church body, function as a family. Simply two points I want to direct your attention to as we open up this idea. We want to consider, first of all, the prevalence of family language in the Bible to describe the church. The prevalence of family language to describe the church. And then secondly, very simply, we'll consider the point of family language in the Bible to describe the church. Want to see the prevalence of family language, lots of family language used in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and then we'll consider what to make of that language. What's the point of that language? So first of all, consider with me the prevalence of family language to describe the church. So let me share with you just a few ways in which the Bible uses family language to describe the church, four ways in particular. Uh, first of all, in the Bible, all Christians are understood to have God as a common father. All Christians are understood, all Christians are understood to have God as a common father. And this is understood to unite us in the family of God because we have the same father. See that family language being used. Uh, so, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, Jesus' most comprehensive teaching on what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to be a believer, what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, there in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In that passage, our Lord uses the word Father to describe God as our Father no less than 17 times. So here's the most fundamental passage on what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus describes our connection to the living God as one of a child to a father, no less than 17 times. So like the Lord's Prayer, for example, we say, our Father who art in heaven. That ought to be the primary way we address God. We can speak to Him by other titles, but that's the primary way. I read a quote a few weeks ago from J.I. Packer. He says, Father is the Christian name for God. It's a wonderful idea. It's the way Jesus wants us to think about His Father. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, he says other things like, your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Uh, Your father knows what you need before you ask of him. This is what's revealed to Christians, to disciples. God is their father. Uh, In John's gospel, we don't have it mentioned as prevalently in John's gospel that uh, God is the personal father of believers. Rather, was emphasized in John's gospel, as we've seen in our series of sermons in John, uh, God is understood to be the father in a unique way to Jesus Christ, the Son. That's what's emphasized all throughout the gospel. But John also, in a climactic way, in a very dramatic way, does bring us to the revelation that God is our father as well. And he does it after 20 chapters of talking about the life that exists in the Godhead and the life that exists between the Father and the Son and the unique relationship that's present. After he is raised from the dead in John 20, he first is revealed to Mary, and this is what he says to Mary in John 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father my God and your God. After 20 chapters of talking about this special relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, Jesus, upon rising from the dead, chooses now to reveal in a special way that these disciples, you're my brothers. And God is not just my Father, He is your Father as well. We have a common Father in God. Very famous passage in 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, we Christians, we members of the church, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So we see in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, we are understood as Christians to be connected to God the Father as His children. And thereby, we're connected to one another because we have a common father. And this leads to a second indication of the prevalence of family language in the Bible. Now, the second way in which this language is revealed to us. Number two, in the Bible, Christians are understood to be brothers and sisters. If God is father, a common father in God, and Christians in the church are understood to be brothers and sisters. Almost immediately and without explanation, the New Testament establishes that we in the church are to relate to one another on the terms of brothers and sisters, the terms of family. Family language is used right away. When I say without explanation, Jesus just sort of immediately starts referring to Christians as brothers and sisters toward one another. Even in that famous passage in Matthew 18 on church discipline, which envisions conflict and tension between Christians in the church, what are the terms upon which that conflict and that tension is to be worked out. In Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, just a random stranger, but if, if your brother, as in that other person in the church, 
that you're connected to by way of having God as a father, that you're connected to by means of a family. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. And he goes on to say, if he receives you, you have gained your brother. You have literally won your brother. Even tension and conflict in the church is to transact on the terms of a family relationship, brotherhood and sisterhood. You have so many passages I could reference where this idea of Christians being brothers and sisters comes to the fore. Just one more I'll reference is 1 John 4, verse 20 through 21. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We have to have this firmly planted in our minds as believers. We in the church are truly brothers and sisters. This is how the Bible reveals our relationship to one another as a family, as brothers and sisters to one another, and we should allow our minds and hearts to be filled with all of the implications that that relational bond entails. Okay, now third indication of biblical, excuse me, family language in the Bible. We've seen that in the Bible, God is our common father. In the Bible, Christians are described as brothers and sisters. Thirdly, in the Bible, the church is described as a household. Church is described as a household. So if you are still open to Ephesians 2, I know it was a long time ago that I asked you to turn there. It's in Ephesians 2, the latter part of that chapter, that Paul, writing to this church, envisions. So, 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 so in the Ephesian context, there was this mass conversion of Gentiles. That is those who were not Jews. People who had worshipped pagan gods and some who had been caught up in demonic uh, practices and occult-like practices. And they had been called out of that. They had been brought into the church. And they're there alongside conservative Jews as well. There are Jews and Gentiles in the church. Two groups that could not be more unlike each other. But one of the things the gospel does, according to Paul in the book of Ephesians, is it reconciles and unites disparate peoples into one body, into one church. And so in Ephesians 2, the latter part of that chapter, verses 11 through 22, the apostle Paul is explaining how it is uh, that Jew and Gentile now dwell in the same body in the church and how they're to be one, uh, no longer to be divided or to be alienated from one another. And the language he uses, sort of the climax of this section, is to describe the church as a household in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Jews and Gentiles were strangers and were alienated toward one another, did not belong in the same church together. But now you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're members together of one household, one family unit. Uh, you who were formerly estranged and alienated from one another, you've been brought in through the death of Christ into the church, and you have been united now as brothers and sisters in the household of God. This language is used in a number of other places. In 1 Timothy 3, uh, when Paul is telling Timothy, when he's sharing with him the qualifications for elders, uh, one of the qualifications is that that man is to be considered for the office of elder or pastor in the church, uh, is to have proved himself in the context of his own family. Uh, for, as Paul says, if a man cannot manage his own household, how will he take care of the household of God? It is the church is... is 
his immediate family, and he's to pastor his family. And, and if he's proven there, along with meeting the other qualifications, he, he's to be approved to pastor the household of God, the family of God. Later on in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul tells Timothy the reason for which he's written this letter to him. He says, if I'm delayed in coming to you, I, I write this letter to you, I'm paraphrasing, uh, so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the household or the family of God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. Uh, in another place, in Galatians 6.10, Paul writes, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith, the family of faith. You see the family language that's being used. The church is understood to be a household. A family of people united from disparate backgrounds and cultures and environments, and they're brought together through what Christ has done on the cross to be an actual family, an actual household together in the church. And fourthly and finally, indications of family language in the Bible. I'm just calling this heading, Other Traces of Family Language. So God's our Father, we're brothers and sisters, the church is described as a family and as a household. Well, just a few loose ends, uh, other traces of family language. Uh, the Apostle John, writing to the church at Ephesus, we believe, in 1 John, 1 John 2, verse 1, as he's writing to uh, uh, those who had come to believe on Christ through his ministry, what, what language does he use to describe his connection to them? He says, I write to you, dear children. I write to you, my little children. As he wants to borrow language to describe his connection with them, it says, a child to a father. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul does a similar thing. He refers to his ministry among the Thessalonians as that of a nursing mother to an infant child or that of a tender father. He says, I was like a nursing mother among you. I was like a tender father. I related to you on the conditions of the intimacy and tenderness that are established through our family connection in Christ. One of my favorite sort of ways in which family language comes to the fore in the New Testament is in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 1. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, I'm writing so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the family of God, the household of God. And Timothy, if you know his story, he's like a younger pastor. Timothy is told, you know, do not uh, let the people, he's also in Ephesus, do not let them despise your youth, but be an example to them in speech and in conduct and in hope and in love and in purity. Uh, so he's a, he's a young pastor, and how's he supposed to relate to these people in the household of God? Here he is, the pastor, and he's supposed to be relating to people in a certain way. Now, what terms is he to relate to them? Well, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 1 and 2, Timothy is told, do not rebuke an older man. Here's Timothy, the young pastor. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as a father. The older women as mothers, the younger men as brothers, the younger women as sisters in all purity. How's Timothy, this young man, to think of his relationship with his brothers and sisters in the church, whether older or younger, male or female? Think of them, Timothy, as your own father, your own mother, your own brother, your own sister. You see the prevalence of family language that's used to describe the church. We in the church are understood to have God as our father, 
Like we corporately, of course individually as well, but we as a body have God as our Father. We'd understand that we are brothers and sisters, even in the most uncomfortable sort of ways when we're confronting each other in the area of sin. Even then, the family language prevails. We're brothers and sisters. Uh, we're to understand that the church is a household, the church is a family. That's the language that Paul uses, where people from different tribe, t- tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations are brought together in one household. And then we see also in these other traces how the New Testament writers thought of their relationship with people in the church. Well, what should we make of all this family language in the New Testament? I think at the very least, we must see that in the Bible, The church is not just like a family, but it is a family. The church is not just like a family. The church is a family. God is actually, truly our Father. We are actual brothers and sisters. We are an actual household or family here in the church. The church is not just like a family. The church is a family. You have more in common with your brothers and sisters in the church, in Christ, who like you have been bought with the blood of Christ, who like you have the living God as their father, who like you make up the household of faith than you do with your unbelieving blood relatives. If you are my brother or sister in Christ, you are more my family than my own blood family who are non-Christians. I'm related to them on the basis of genetics and DNA. I'm related to you on the basis of the electing love of God set upon you and me before the foundations of the world, by which we have both been saved and adopted as sons and daughters of the living God and have been made a family in Christ Jesus and will spend the rest of eternity together in sinless paradise. That is far more substantial, an ontological connection than sharing the same last name or the same genetic code. We are more truly brothers and sisters in the church in Christ than we are with our own family who's outside of Christ. We are more a family in the church than we can possibly understand and appreciate. Friends, the church is not just like a family. It is a family in the most true and meaningful sense. Brothers and sisters, we are brothers and sisters. Now consider with me secondly, we've seen the prevalence of family language to describe the church. Consider with me now the point of family language to describe the church. What's the point of family language in the Bible? Oftentimes, toward the end of my sermons, there's a section on application. This really is the application, okay? What do we do with this language, the point of family language? There are two simple things I want us to see here, and the first is so obvious it hardly needs to be said but I'll say it anyway. Number one, what's the point of family language? We should actually view our fellow Christians as our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should actually view our brothers and sisters, our fellow Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just in this church, but in every place, and maybe especially in this church. But we should recognize that our Christians, our fellow Christians are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So my believing friend, do you see the other members of this church as your brothers and sisters? 
To call each other by that name is not superficial. It's not a pretense. It's blood-bought reality to refer to your fellow Christians in the church as brothers and sisters. In the deepest possible way, the Christians sitting around you are your family. And I'm asking you, do you see it that way? Do you see your fellow Christians as your brothers and sisters? Well, if we believe the Bible, we should. If we understand the gospel, we should. This is going to sound like an overstatement, but I assure you it's not. Whether or not you see your fellow Christians as your brothers and your sisters is integral to our understanding of the gospel itself. We do not make much of the gospel if we do not make much of this idea that we in the church are really, truly, actually a family. So we're going to actually look at Ephesians 2 again, okay? And I want you to see how Paul develops this idea. I'm saying that the fact that we call each other brother and sister, the fact that we think of ourselves as a family, the fact uh, uh, that we look at one another and relate to one another on the terms of family intimacy, I'm saying that's very close to the heart of the gospel. As we read Ephesians 2, 12 and following, uh, notice how many times Paul references the cross or the blood of Christ or the death of Christ in securing our relationship to one another as a family. So, Ephesians 2, verse 12, Paul's writing to the Gentiles. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. By the way, if you're not a Jew, that's you before you were saved, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near how? By the blood of Christ. That is the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, is what actually secured and accomplished the bringing near of those who were far off and bringing them into the same church body. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. What's that a reference to? That's a reference to the breaking down of the flesh of the Son of God on the cross. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of the family of God. In other words, your place, like your place in this family was secured for you by the blood of the Son of God. To call that person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you, to call that person your brother or your sister is a privilege paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus on the cross was not just making atonement for individual sinners. He was certainly doing that. But the gospel, the cross, does 
Much more than that, he was also uniting together in his death disparate peoples into one body, into one family, making the two one. Therefore, to deny the title brother or sister to your fellow Christian is to deny to Jesus the merits of his death. Our status as brothers and sisters, our status as the family of God was secured for us by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's blood-bought reality. You know, I heard of a church that actually uh, instructed its members uh, not to refer to one another as brother and sister. Uh, because that will be seen as superficial, that will be seen as kind of weird, and, and people might think we're some sort of cult or something. We're always calling each other brother or sister. I contend that to censure such language in that way is to rob the gospel of its compelling power and witness. The gospel, the cross, the death of Jesus makes us a family. Which means this man, this woman has been made my brother, made my sister, supernaturally through the death of the Son of God. Now why would we ever want to hide that? Why would we ever be embarrassed by that? That's part of the witness of the gospel, the compelling and supernatural power of the gospel, that it can take people so unlike each other, so selfish and so sinful, and naturally maybe at odds with each other, alienated from one another, maybe even enemies toward one another, and actually uniting them together in a family, whereby they actually relate to each other as brothers and sisters with all the affection and tenderness and warmth that that language conveys. That's the gospel's power. It doesn't just save us from sin. It brings us into the family of God. It makes us one through the blood of Jesus Christ. It unites us in the household through the cross. That's what the gospel achieves for us. The point of this family language in the Bible is to describe, excuse me, to describe the church is so that we would actually see each other as a family. So my friends, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, call each other by that name. Say the word, my brother, I'm praying for you. Uh, sister, I love you, I want to encourage you. Call each other by that name. That's a privilege, that's a right secured by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to actually be family to one another, to be brothers and sisters with each other. Every church I've been in, it's been so wonderful to witness. Um, the church has a way of attracting kind of outcasts and misfits, no offense, okay? But, but, but people maybe who have been ostracized by their own families and maybe didn't experience the warmth and affection that they ought to have experienced in their own family, they somehow find a place in the church. And it's been wonderful to witness People in previous churches I've been in and even this church. Well, they, don't, they don't seem to fit in their own family. They don't seem to fit in the world. They don't seem to fit in whatever friend group or sphere they were in before that. But in the church, they find a home. In the church, in a way they maybe can't describe or explain, they find a family. These people are my brothers and sisters. Now, that's why I love, I love when Christian people get together and celebrate holidays together. You normally do that with family, right? It's a wonder, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that with your blood relatives. But I'm just saying it's a wonderful thing when Christians gather together and share their lives together as a family because that's representative of the truth of God's Word. We actually are a family. 
But now the second point, and we'll conclude with this point. So if we're to see one another as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, what does that mean for how we relate to each other? Uh, What implications does that have for how we relate to one another? I think in our particular context, and surely this has been true in times past, but in our particular context in 21st century America, we're probably at a bit of a disadvantage here. Because in our context, so many families are broken. Uh, So many families, it's not the center of love and affection and warmth. Oftentimes, family members are estranged from one another. Uh, They're not actually the members of the family. are not seeking the good of each other, but they're competing together and they're rivalry together. Okay, so don't import all of that mess of what we've done to the family over the last 300 years and import that into the Bible's language of family. Because the way the Bible uses this language is something far more positive and far more wonderful than our modern associations with dysfunctional 21st century American families, okay? So what does it mean to behave toward one another like brothers and sisters? It means that love is to prevail. It means that warmth is to prevail. It means that tenderness and affection are to prevail. Our relationships with one another in the church should be marked by familial warmth, tenderness, and love. You think of two brothers and their relationship together. Uh, How should that relationship come to expression? How do brothers behave toward one another? Again, in our context, they hate each other, okay? But that's not the way the Bible envisions brotherly relationships working themselves out. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. How do brothers behave? They have affection for each other. How do sisters behave? They have affection for each other in the same family. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. How are we to live as a family together? In brotherly and sisterly affection. Outdoing one another in showing honor. Having sanctified competition in bestowing honor on one another. Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. 1 Peter 3, 8, finally all of you have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What does brotherhood and sisterhood produce in terms of our conduct toward one another? Love and warmth and tenderness and affection and humility and unity. Our relationships with one another in the church should be marked by familial warmth and tenderness and love. These dynamics should permeate our actions toward one another and our thoughts toward one another. And these dynamics should inform the way we talk to one another. So let me just encourage you. Get comfortable saying to your brothers and sisters in the church, I love you. Now that phrase and generally showing affection toward other people, that comes more naturally to some than to others. But if you've got to get in front of the mirror and say it ten times, okay, we should be comfortable saying to our brothers and sisters in the church, our mothers and our fathers, our sisters and our brothers, I love you. I love you. Uh, there was a brother in this church in his membership interview. Uh, we have interviews with all the incoming members right before they join Uh, One of the brothers said, I I asked the question, is there any particular way uh, we as pastors can minister to you, help you, serve you? And he said, you know, there's not a lot of ways I could think of, but can you please just uh, on occasion 
tell me you love me. And just come up to me on a Sunday morning and, and embrace me. Just tell me you love me. Listen, people need to hear that more than you would think. And, and where else should they experience that kind of affection than in the blood-bought family of God? We should shower one another with affection. People should never wonder in the church if the people sitting around them love them. Church, the family of God is a safe environment, an affectionate environment, a warm environment, a tender environment. The church is not like a family, it is a family. And love and tenderness and affection ought to prevail. Because you have been made my brother or my sister, I am called by Scripture to love you. Even if that doesn't come naturally, I'm called by God to love my brothers and sisters the way brothers and sisters should love each other. If you're my brother or my sister, you can never be my enemy. You can never be my adversary. No, you're family. People say in the South, we's kin, right? You're family. You can't be my enemy. You can't be my adversary. And so, when tension or division emerge in the life of the church, as tension or division emerges in every family, when tension or division or strife springs up in the church between you and a fellow Christian, that tension, right, it takes on a different complexion when you recognize this person's not my enemy. We got some tension, we got some rivalry and strife, but this person's my brother, my sister. Their good is my good. Their sorrow is my sorrow. Their joy is my joy. We win together and we lose together. We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We bear one another's burdens. We are a family. I can never think of you as my enemy. You're my brother. You're my sister bought by the blood of Christ. And as a family, we stand with each other and defend each other. We possess solidarity with one another. You mess with any one of us. You mess with all of us. If one is weak, we're all weak. Love and warmth and affection, commitment and devotion. These are the family dynamics that should mark our relationships with one another in the church. And I contend in this sermon that if we truly realize what it means to live as a family in the way that the Bible tells us, we will be a happy church indeed. And so as we close now very practically, what does this look like to live as a family in this particular local church? What does this mean for us here at Emmanuel? It means that because we're a family, we will take an eager interest in the spiritual and material well-being of one another. Because we're a family, we will get to know one another. We'll spend time together. We'll break bread together in one another's homes. We'll celebrate life's joys together and we'll mourn with each other through life's sorrows. Because we're a family, we will seek to organize times of focused fellowship together in small groups and in church picnics and potluck meals. Because we're a family, we will give ourselves regularly to pray for one another through prayer meetings small groups, and those long pastoral prayers in the middle of the sermon. Because we're a family, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but we'll gather together and seek to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. Because we're a family, we 
won't scatter as soon as the service is over, but we will linger together. We love those little pockets of time before and after the service when we get to hug each other's necks and play with each other's kids, share brief updates on our lives, and maybe step aside briefly in the hallway or in the pew to spontaneously pray together. Because we're a family, we will exhort one another daily. We will encourage the faint-hearted. We will lift up the drooping hands and strengthen the feeble knees. We will not turn a blind eye to those who are backsliding, but will call them back to repentance so that they may walk faithfully in communion with us. Because we're a family, we know that ceasing to love one another is not an option and is disallowed by Scripture. Therefore, we will persevere in our relationships with one another, even when this requires us to be patient and long-suffering with one another. Because we're a family, we will be quick to repent and we will be quick to forgive. Because we're a family, we will share our possessions and have a special eye toward the poor among us, and we will seek to minister to the suffering and the hurting. Because we're a family, we will celebrate together along with angels in heaven when a sinner among us repents and receives Christ. We will all come to his or her baptism to celebrate God's grace in saving a sinner. Because we're a family, we will go and sing around the beds of older saints who have reached the edge of Jordan's banks. We will live together and we will die together. Because we're a family, our life together will never end, but will continue around the throne of Jesus Christ where we will live in paradise as the family of God. Now who would not want to be part of such a family. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we address you by that title secured for us by the blood of the Son of God. Our Father, we, it would have been enough for us simply to be saved from our sins and to be counted right with you. But you have done so much more. You have secured for us a place at the family table in the church. You have secured for us adoption. You have secured for us our very own brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. You have made us a family. Oh, how we thank you for the blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, which has made it so. and continues to preserve that relationship we have to one another as a family. Lord, forgive us when we have chosen not to view one another in that way. Help us always to keep this before our minds, that our fellow Christians are truly our family, that their good really is our good, that we are no stronger than our weakest member. Help us, Lord, to realize the ideals of your word for the church, that we might be a very happy church as we seek to live as a family together. Oh, please, Lord, give us grace. Forgive us, we're slow and we're weak and we so fail 
in living this out, but would you, by your grace, help us to do better? Uh, Would you help us more and more to realize what it means to be brothers and sisters together in one household? Help us to do that now as we celebrate communion together. We recognize that we celebrate not only uh, our individual relationship with you and remembering your death for us, but this is something you've ordained to be recognized by the whole church body together as we celebrate not only our communion with Christ, but our communion together with each other in the church. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.